0: To Sand Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah.
1: Welcome to Belabored, episode 130. This week, we are taking a deep look at the world of retail work around the country, from the Bay Area to the flagship Bloomingdale's in New York City. But first, the news. Like us, you are probably watching with bated breath as the Senate fights over Trump care. Heck, even Trump can't seem to decide if he likes the bill. At recording time, the vote that was scheduled to happen on Thursday had been been pushed back until after the July 4th recess, giving all the activists who have been raising hell in their districts a chance to, well, raise even more hell. Particular congratulations go to our friendly hellraisers in Nevada, Maine, Ohio, Wisconsin, about which more soon, and West Virginia, whose senators are opposing the bill not because they want to make it worse like Rand Paul and Ted Cruz, but because they actually perhaps realized that it would hurt their constituents. And it would. The Congressional Budget Office's report on the bill as it stands right now is that it would kick 22 million more people off of their insurance, premiums and out-of-pocket costs would be much higher, and could be in ha- as high, in fact, as $20,000 a year for older people, precisely the demographic that votes most regularly and votes most regularly for Republicans. The Medicaid cuts in this bill alone would be devastating, resulting in 15 million of those 22 million insurance losses, and of course hitting the poorest and sickest Americans directly. The Democrats cheered as McConnell pushed back his planned shock vote, but McConnell will likely spend the next week or two adding sweeteners for all the holdouts to get them on board, and so those of you who have been calling, holding sit-ins, marches, and direct actions, keep it up. If you've been involved in an action against Trumpcare, you can always tweet at us at hashtag belabored or email us at belabored at dissentmagazine.org.
2: Sometimes you need a scientific study to tell you what we all intuitively understood anyway. So now we have a study that lays out in clear empirical terms that when you pay workers more, guess what? They make more money. In April 2015, Seattle enacted a pioneering law to raise the city's hourly base wage to $15 incrementally by 2021, up from $11 an hour. The phase-in, which would expand incrementally each year at different levels, depending on various factors like the size of the firm, the availability of insurance, and the nature of the industry, would eventually be indexed to inflation. And after the first full year of breaking the $15 base wage, Seattle's policy is finally bearing fruit in at least one key industry. And after the first year of breaking the $15 base wage, Seattle's policy is finally bearing fruit in at least one industry that we all know. The study was conducted by researchers with the University of California Berkeley's Institute for Research on Labor and Employment, which has run similar projection studies on the effect of a $15 minimum wage in different states and cities across the country, tracks the policy's initial implementation phases, starting with firms with 500 or more employees without insurance. The study focused specifically on the food service industry in Seattle because those jobs are broadly representative of low-wage service jobs across the city. Researchers found that, at least for restaurant workers, bosses are complying with the law so far, and workers are benefiting through higher wages. Those earning minimum wage are getting the boost that they were promised. Pretty straightforward. The analysis does not present a comprehensive picture of the law's overall, broad-reaching economic effects. So we don't know what exactly it's doing to employment levels or job quality around the city, but previous studies suggest that wage increases on the whole may actually have a pretty positive effect on the economy, and certainly doesn't undermine employment levels, and not surprisingly, in many cases, makes workers more productive and more likely to stay with the business, because when they're making more money, they tend to be a little happier. There were, in the Seattle projection, differences in which workers gained in different segments of the industry. The strongest wage increases, for instance, were seen in workers earning a regular hourly wage, primarily low-wage fast food workers and other frontline personnel like that in uh, pretty basic chain restaurants. Tipped workers at full-service restaurants, however, did not see the same degree of benefit from the raised minimum wage, and there is a good reason for this. In order to sweeten the pot and reach a compromise over the final wage standard with business, the city government agreed to introduce a small break for employers. Restaurant owners would get a so-called tip credit that basically allows them to pass off some of the cost of meeting the minimum wage standard onto the tipped wage that they earn uh, simply through the tips that are allocated by consumers. So essentially they're getting the diners to subsidize the low wages of their restaurant workers um, rather than paying out of the revenues of the restaurant overall. Um, The Seattle study helps advance the nationwide debate over renewing our standards over what a fair day's wage and a fair hour's pay means today, especially for the workers who are struggling to get by on tips and see extreme volatility in their day-to-day incomes. Nationwide, currently, eight other cities in eight states, including California and New York, are implementing minimum wage increases in the $12 to $15 range, and this will eventually impact several million workers across the country within a few years. A bill, too, has been proposed for a national $15 minimum hourly wage that was recently introduced in the Senate by Bernie Sanders at L and other progressive lawmakers. Um, it is kind of you know dead in the water uh, under this conservative Congress. But despite the fierce opposition from the Republicans and their push to eviscerate and undermine state and local federal fair labor standards as well, at least... Studies like this go towards proving the case that higher wages do work when employers are forced to pay them, and if you dare to set a higher standards for all workers, bosses simply have no choice but to suck it up and comply.
1: Paul Ryan shepherded the AHCA through the House on its second try and is already eyeing other things that he wants to hack out of the federal budget. The Speaker of the House hails from Wisconsin, a state with a proud progressive labor heritage, though, and Ryan's already got a challenger for his seat with deep connections to that heritage. I spoke with Randy Bryce, union ironworker and Democrat for Congress, about why we need more working people in political office.
3: So Paul Ryan, of course, is uh, leading the charge to dismantle the Affordable Care Act. Um, So was that the thing that made you decide to run against him?
4: There's there's a lot of things. That's the that's the biggest issue as far as policy wise. But mm-hmm. I think an even bigger issue is just, uh, I mean, as an iron worker, if, if I show up to work or, you know, first of all, I have to show up at the job right. site to do the job. And if I don't mm-hmm. do my job, then I'm going to get replaced with somebody who can Um and my job. You, you know, Paul Ryan should be representing people. He's not even he hasn't had any public town hall event in the district for over 600 days but he's had over 50 you know big dollar fundraisers where pay ten thousand dollars to get your picture taken with him so he's not doing his job um and that's the bigger issue i think is that he's refusing and and, you know based on him doing things like taking away health care he has reason not to want to face people in this district i don't blame him for being afraid to show his face because a lot of people are upset and angry but that's the number one thing how can he represent people he doesn't want to see
3: yeah you mentioned you know there's been a lot of, of talk about the the working class and specifically the white working class after trump's election but neither party runs very many people um union workers for office so tell us why it's important to not just sort of pay lip service to workers or Wear a baseball cap and pretend that you're working class, but actually elect working people
4: to office. Did I mean who better to speak out for working people than other working people? I, I, I don't think that representatives. It, it should be an auction, you know. I, I think we need to get all this big money out of politics so that people really do have a say in in who is being represented. It's it's an election, not an auction. And yeah. um, I mean, I I don't see any better person. I don't want to, you know, when I vote for somebody, I look at similarities. Like, how is that person like me? What do we have in common? Um, and do you notice know, that? What, where does that person stay? What have they, what have they done for a living? Uh, and you have somebody like Paul Ryan. That's, you know, he's made his living as a congressman. He, you know, and and he sees his job as. Taking things away from people. And, and, and he's the one that had the speech about makers and takers, which is, uh-huh. you know, to this day, it's it's completely ironic that he's still in office when he's taking anything, you know, away. And, and we're working twice as hard and, and getting so much less. And that's just not right. The people I, I, I work with every day, um, you know, we take care of each other. That's, that's what this country's about. That's why I enlisted. And that's not what's going on in Washington, D.C. right now. We're being ignored. Um, And and I see us as being attacked. Working people's values are being attacked.
3: Speaking of working people's values, um, a bunch of people that I know sort of when your ad went up and people were passing it around, were like, oh, I know him from the protest
0: in 2010, 2011.
3: (laughs) Um, So, right, Wisconsin. We can't talk about Wisconsin without talking about the protest. Scott Walker's attacks on labor. You're in the state that's been in ground zero for attacks on union workers. Right. Tell us a little bit about that. Back to the you know 2011 and what's been going on since then. The right to work law, all of those things.
4: It's it's been crazy. It's um, Wisconsin has literally been turned into a banana republic. And when I was in the army, I spent time in Central America. I I've been in a in a authentic, genuine banana republic. That's what Wisconsin has become. They've gone. Uh, I mean, you're talking about like the occupation, where people were staying overnight in order to testify because that was holding the bill from getting passed. They, you know, they, as long as people were willing to line up, and I mean, it, it was a, a 24-hour-a-day thing. They couldn't pass the bill, and people were willing to wait all night to testify. Um, uh-huh. The Wisconsin Republicans have since turned to a method known as ambush legislation, which is where they'll announce something at the last minute. They have to give by law, they have to give 24 hour notice to the public to be able to speak. Um, mm-hmm. But what they do is they, and they have the system down now, um, They uh, where they, they announce a bill, they have everything planned out to ram it through as quickly as possible. They set limits on the time allowed for the public to be able to testify. Um, yeah. Which, I, I mean, then again, that just goes back to the message now of people wanting to be heard. So they, yeah. they don't want to hear us. They know what they're going to do anyways. And even though, like, take the, the right to work legislation, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, like, Freedom of Information Act acts done to legis- legislators asking for the percentage, you know, of who is for and who was against. And 90% of the people, of the constituents that contacted their legislators, were opposed mm-hmm. to right to work. Yet yeah. the, the legislators still voted to pass it. it. It's gotten to the point where they don't care about us anymore, and and mm-hmm. it's all about passing this anti-worker, extremist agenda. Um, and now with Donald Trump in the White House um, and Paul Ryan as Speaker, what's happened in Wisconsin has been exported to the, the national level.
1: That was Randy Bryce, and you can find a link to the full-length interview at the Dissent website.
2: As we discuss the complex struggles facing retail workers today, from gender discrimination to union busting, Walmart has, of course, become ground zero for many of these battles, since the workplace symbolizes not only one of the standard bearers of the retail industry as a whole but also one of the most politically powerful corporations that heavily influences workplace policy as well as the enforcement of labor rights and it sets standards for labor practices and benefits all around the country and one thing that their workers have always struggled with is for the right to take time off to take care of their families when they need them walmart's scheduling practices are notoriously exploitative and one big part of that is the inability to take time off for pregnancy, for things like uh, temporary disabilities, and just simply when you're out sick. A new report from the advocacy group A Better Balance, based on surveys of Walmart workers across the country, found that workers report being systematically denied the leave time that they are legally entitled to. I spoke with Brittany, who moved to Texas to nurse her ailing mother during her last few months of life, and she was basically her mother's sole caregiver. As she navigated medical expenses and appointments, she said her requests for leave time at Walmart were repeatedly denied. Her mother passed away and she couldn't be at her side because of her problems with the management. And Now Brittany fears that her wife now, who also works nights at Walmart and is also struggling to take care of her own gravely ill parent, is going to face the same struggle.
5: Well, see, they kept telling me different. At first, like when I first got here, it was zero to six months. So at that point, she could die any day. And we hit the six-month mark, and they gave her another six months. So, I mean, it was pretty much we were just waiting. You know, it was just like waiting for the ball to drop. Kind of like, you know what I mean? Her husband had left her. When she got that sick, he looked at me and said, Tiffany, I can't do this. I don't know what to tell you. You're going to have to do it. So pretty much it all put on me. Because taking care of your mom when she's like that, it's, it's hard. You know what I mean? It's it's really hard to see your mom and then see her at some point points, and her look right at you and not know you who you are. And there were times where, I mean, I felt bad because I had to leave her home alone. And her in a condition that... She don't even know where she is, but I have to leave her because, you know, if I get fired, who's going to have gas money to take her back and forth to her uh, doctor's appointments, which were sometimes several days a week. And where we live in Rockdale, her doctor's appointments are an hour away. Like, when I first got here, she had no insurance. Nobody knew how to get her on Social Security. So I had that fellow on my lap where I was having to go to the Social Security Administration Make sure they had the paperwork they needed. Make sure the doctors were given the paperwork. It pretty much all fell on me. And all at the same time, I'm trying to juggle my job. And I even asked, I even asked work, you know, because they were like, well, we understand your mom's sick, but you're missing too much work. And I'm like, okay, well, then can y'all work with me and y'all give me two days together. So are that way when mom needs doctor's appointments, can say, hey, well, I'm going to be off tuesday or wednesday next week i know that so can we schedule it on tuesday or wednesday that way i don't have to call out of work and they wouldn't even do that they said no we need you here every truck night and i'm like look like i don't understand why you're not willing to work with me like i have paperwork sitting right here in front of your face saying that i'm my mother's medical power of attorney and right now she's terminally ill so i mean it, it, she, there's a lot of major medical decisions that are being made at the drop of a hat right now because her body is pretty much failing.
2: Did you ever try to take it to,
5: like, a higher supervisor or something? Honestly, ma'am, I felt like it would do no good, and I felt like I would be retaliated against because they're, I mean, not trying to go off the subject, but there is a lot of that that goes on at Walmart. Like, if you go tattletale on somebody, you're going to get your hours cut or you're going to get written up for stuff. And you'll eventually get fired. Did you have
2: colleagues who were undergoing the same thing, like they were experiencing similar issues when they had family caregiving
5: duties? Yes, ma'am. I'm married. My wife works with me overnight. And her mother, had, my mother-in-law, has lung cancer. And, I mean, she was doing the same thing. She was trying to get her mother back and forth the chemo treatment. I mean, and she would tell them two or three weeks ahead of time, hey, I have this. This this isn't this day off, so I can make sure my mom has chemo treatment and not have to be up all day and all night to come to work. And they wouldn't accommodate her either. I mean, it, it was pretty much she was in the same position I am, you know. And she's still having it because her mother's still living. You know what I mean? So she's still doing, she's still dealing with it.
2: Do you think you have a better sense of how to deal with it now because you kind of know that it's going to be a struggle? Honestly,
5: I, I I honestly feel bad for her and, and like the whole reason I'm even saying anything now is because of that. I mean what happens if her mom winds up on her deathbed and she can't be with her mom because she's on her last her last point and if she calls out to be with her mom she gets fired. Well you know what, I had to go through that and that's not something I want my wife to ever have to go through. And I hope and I pray that Walmart Really needs to step back and think about what they're doing to people because I mean, that's something for one and that is really hard to go through, but for two, to feel like your job's being held over your head at the same time you're about to lose of one of the most important people in your life and you feel like your company has no consideration for that is pretty sorry, in my book. And I've worked for companies that would that have. Trained me. As a manager, I've been managers for companies. I know how you're supposed to address your employees, and I know that the way Walmart is doing it is not right, and it's not fair, and something needs to change, or they're going to wind up like Kmart. Honestly, I mean, they're going to wind up without business, because us as associates, we are also voices, and like, I don't want to go spend my money at a store One, how they treated me,
1: As you just heard from Brittany, retail workers deal with a lot on the job, and their employers impose strict rules with little benefits. Retail workers have gotten a lot of attention lately, as retail shops have been closing, downsizing, and shifting operations online. But despite the changes in layoffs, retail is still one of the fastest growing jobs in the country, and it's still projected to remain that way for a while. What do retail workers want and need, and how does organizing help them get it? Uh, that's the subject of a recent feature story I wrote for Racked.com, and it's the subject of the interviews we bring you today with retail workers and organizers who have studied the industry and managed to make some changes in it. First up is Carrie Gleason of the Center for Popular Democracy and formerly of the Retail Action Project here in New York. Carrie talked to me about the state of retail work, the positive gains around wages, and more. You know,
6: since San Francisco passed the Retail Bo- Worker Bill of Rights, um, it the Fair Work Week policy is spread across the country um, and it's been amazing to see, you know, policymakers, Esther, they've, you know, raised the minimum wage, passed paid sick day, there's been this real energy of what's next and recognizing like this growing awareness of crisis that families are experiencing around their work hours has generated enough energy to have um, policymakers in cities like, you know, Seattle or Emeryville pass um, such comprehensive work hour standards. Um, and it's also incredibly popular. Like, I think the San Jose ballot measure um, that gives part-time workers opportunity to work more hours passed by 63%. Um, and it's on such a relatively new policy issue it's a thing that people just really understand because it's something we all struggle with like it doesn't matter where you work like you understand that it actually is like a really yeah. it's a challenging to navigating and balancing your job and the rest of your life is a juggling act that we all can relate to and when it comes down to whether or not you have a job, get health care, or can pay the bills, I think people really get how important this issue is. Um, so last year was an incredibly breakthrough year. We won four campaigns. Um, Seattle and Emeryville passed comprehensive Fair Workweek standard. San Jose passed the first ever ballot measure that gives um, the opportunity to work measure. And then Washington, D.C., um, passed the country's first guaranteed hours law that guarantees 30 hours a week for commercial janitors, um, which is um, pretty historic because no other guaranteed hours law exists in the country. Um, And I don't think it'll be the last. I think we're going to see it spread. Um, Right now, uh, it looks like New York City's on the cusp of passing comprehensive fair work week standards, and Oregon is actually gaining incredible momentum. It looks like we're we have a good chance of winning in Oregon as the first statewide win this year, Um, and we're seeing other major cities. You know, policymakers are eager and (laughs) to to like to step up and show that they're that they can like you know provide solutions to these challenges families are experiencing. We're also seeing it take off in red states. Mm -hmm. Um, So we saw. Policymakers in North Carolina and Ohio introduce um, fair workweek bills, knowing that you know the state legislature wasn't going to step up and pass it um, but just recognizing that like this needs to be on the table is something that um, we need to be doing for working families. And then Sherrod Brown actually included it in his um, economic plan. And you hear. <laughs> so, you know, it's so in the when you think about how long it took um, to get to 15 on minimum wage or how long it took to get traction on paid sick days, the rapid progression on fair work week policies has like, been pretty unprecedented. Yeah. yeah it turns out when you have a big movement of workers then uh... <laughs>
1: people,
0: <laughs> Yeah are like,
1: Oh hey yeah, there, you need this. Um, um, yeah and the the fight and five is still like really associated people's minds
6: with fast food workers, but it's hard pretty quickly to retail workers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I think that retail workers have been organizing for a long time from the work that the Retail Action Project did for you know, and the RWDSU has done in New York for decades and also um, the camp, our Walmart campaign, you know, like retail workers have been the forefront of, of this movement um, and are organizing alongside fast food workers and many of CPD's partners are organizing retail and fast food workers together um, and so um, and this workforce has been like ready to step up, like they're just as impacted by the the games, um you know, with fifteen as, as anyone else.
3: Yeah,
1: um, yeah, and so you know, right now we're in the midst of the, the media okay. like, oh my god, retail's dead. Right? <laughs> and so I wonder if you're seeing people sort of is there any sort of reaction to that news that like is making policymakers like a little nervous to push on retail stuff? Or
6: yeah, um,
1: you know, we haven't seen cities that have passed 15
6: and paid six days struggle economically. Like I think these are, what's happening in retail right now is a result of um, an oversaturation of the market, um, increasing pressure and competition from online retailing, and also companies that just haven't adapted to um, the way that people shop today. So. Most of the companies that are clothing stores have actually been struggling for a very long time. You know, JCPenney, Macy's, Payless, Radio Shack, Sears, Wet Seal, all of those companies have not been doing well for a very long time, before even the explosion of Amazon Prime. And so I think that, you know, there's this disruption happening in retail, but if you look at the data retail salesperson is still like one of the fastest growing positions in this country. One in 10 Americans, you know, are still employed in this sector. The sector is still projected to grow. Um, And when you look at it by states and states like Nevada, the retail sector is going to grow by 30%. Um, You know, those projections, you know, it's still a growing sector. You see Amazon testing brick and mortar, you know, it's not going to go away. and. and I think when we think about, like, like which jobs matter today, okay, yeah. like, this, when you look at who is the service sector worker, um, it is the retail worker, you yeah. know, like she's black she's paid by the hour she um you know has to choose between her job or her kid when when they're sick like like it is not the manufacturing worker or the co-worker and it is still you know it's astonishing to me that people can say well why should we care about retail jobs look the stores are closing and how yeah. quick we turn to that when when like you know like w- compared to the jobs numbers of Coal or manufacturing. Um, so I think that there's been some really brilliant debate happening right now about why why don't we care about this workforce? This is like a massive part of the American electorate, and that's politicized, right? And that and that this shouldn't become this moment where we're seeing some contraction in the retail market. Shouldn't be this moment where we justify not caring about the quality of these jobs, or that we shy away from making them family sustaining jobs because the business cases out there that these jobs like totally matter. These companies are thriving and profitable Walmart is still the largest employer in America and like and the Waltons can afford to, to pay a decent wage you know like so I think that we, we can't let this moment like lose ha- allow us to lose perspective on really the role how important retail is to our economy um, and can't allow it to be like another justification for why we shouldn't care about this workforce or those jobs. The other thing is just that, like, there are parts of the sector in the same month where, you know, clothing and general merchandise and department stores closed, home and garden and furnishing actually grew. And so the data is actually pretty, it's more nuanced.
1: These are all questions of time and power.
6: Yeah. Right?
3: And
1: like, you know, labor likes to talk about like the people who brought you the weekend and all that yeah.
6: stuff. Um, <laughs> and we're fighting we, over overtime still. Yeah, but <laughs> like some of the
1: biggest um, and most significant campaigns in labor movement's history actually are about time. Yeah, um, or, you know, are about standardizing the work week and, and cutting down hours. Yeah. Um, and on that note, it's also funny that now a lot of these people are fighting to get enough hours, totally. rather than before people were like, "I don't want to work twelve hours a day, yeah.
7: seven days a week
6: anymore." Thanks. Yep. Can yep. We get to, you know.
7: Yeah, and it, it
1: makes so little sense when you start to think about like, why is it that all these employers want to have people working three or four hour shifts and have like eight different employees coming through, other than like. The ability to fire
6: people at any
3: yeah, and know that you have enough people that you can cover, it. yeah, whatever.
6: Yeah, I mean, we really saw the rise where I mean, I think managers have used hours to like reward or discipline people, mm-hmm. and so. Yeah you know like if I speak up the first thing that happens to me is my I get like my hours get cut next week and you know the fight for 15 has taken this on and McDonald's across the country you know they then do direct actions to get people's hours restored um and you know, similarly like there's like a lot of like you get a better schedule if your manager likes you and yes. so it's just like power there's an intense power dynamic in how much and when you work in yeah. the in the workplace and yes. you know some companies have even tried to systematize it. So Club Monaco yeah. has will set work schedules based on of each worker's sales per hour. Mm-hmm. And so it's this yeah, idea that you know, like
1: folks and every will have the same thing. Yeah.
6: It's like your commission Yeah, hours by commission. Yeah, exactly. So instead of getting Getting a commission for being a, like, a high producing salesperson you actually get enough hours right and so this idea that like hours are no longer this thing you can count on it's just like a re- way to reward people and that shouldn't be right because it's you know they're just playing games with whether or not people can pay rent or eat or pay the babysitter yeah. you know like it's yeah. Yeah, it's, it's singular, like, not the way it should be given that one in ten Americans are coming on these jobs to get by. Like, right, and it's, it's interesting because it, in some ways it connects to like having to sort of play these games
1: with your manager when retail is already the kind of job where you have to look a certain way and behave a certain way mm-hmm. sort of present a certain face to be a brand a ambassador. Right, <laughs> and then the fact that you also have to Present a certain face to your manager and do
6: this, you know, play that whole game with them too. I mean, surveillance is huge in the retail sector. So, you know, the the point of sale system will. um, Some of them have like video cameras, can see whether or not you're smiling. They track how fast you process a sale. Um, You know, like there's now um, heat sensors in stores that can track traffic. Um, to see where people, you know, are gravitate towards when they're shopping. Um, there's, you know, when you walk, shoppers are surveilled too, right? When you walk into a store, they, they pick up your phone, you know, and, and can forever know when you walk into the store. Um, so, you know, I think that there's, like, surveillance is overall, yeah. like, Rising in our society, and like the retail workforce is like at the front lines of all of the new surveillance technologies. Like it's, it's pretty astounding. Cause and and that's like these these scheduling trends have really undermined the gains that working people have made around minimum wage or paid sick days, right? Like you can get $15 an hour, but if they cut your hours, like your your income might not go up or you can earn paid sick days, but if they can still fire you for not being available the time, like you're not accessing that time when you're sick. And so I think that's why I think policymakers who've passed minimum wage and paid sick days like really get this and like understand why it's the next step. Like,
1: That was Carrie Gleason of the Center for Popular Democracy. I also spoke with Stuart Applebaum, the New York City-based president of the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union, about the history of retail organizing and the recent near-strike at Bloomingdale's. New York City is one of the few places where you have a decently unionized retail workforce.
7: Macy's, Bloomingdale's, Zara, H&M, Modell's, Dwayne Reed, um, lots and lots, supermarkets.
1: Right. Yeah, and I'm just thinking about, um, for obvious reasons the New York City labor movement valued organizing retail workers in a way that I think did not seem to happen in a lot of other parts of the country for right. a long time. Right. Um, so I wonder if you could talk about that in the history of this union.
7: Well, I think that part of it is, um, is that New York has the highest percentage of unionized workers in the country. Yeah. And I think that New York City in particular is seen as a union town. Okay. Um, and there is an understanding of what the role of a union um, is yeah. and how that benefits the worker. Um, I think that's been recognized in New York for generations. Yeah. And I, I also believe that a lot of the early organizing that took place took place in. Um, urban environments, and the most urban environment yeah. was yeah. New York City. It's also, I think that it's also because that it's a place of immigrants, yeah. and um, it's many immigrants who came to this country in the last century also brought their traditions with them, which included um, um which included unionization yeah. and also social responsibility.
5: Yeah, yeah.
7: It seems uh, to me that yeah,
1: yeah, retail is recognized as a, a key part of the economy in New
7: York, where it yes. kind
1: of gets, as we've said, overlooked sort of in some I ways. I think there's
7: a misconception that people have that retail workers are uh, just looking for pocket change mm-hmm. or they're students or that it's just an entry level. That's not the case yeah. I and mean, we have our negotiating committee for Bloomingdale's consists of people who've worked there for more than 30 years. Yeah. Uh, a lot of seniority, people who've made their um, livelihoods yeah. in the retail industry. At one time, um, retail in particular, was seen as a very good job. You are able to lead a middle-class life, But a lot of retailers now are replacing full time work with uh, precarious employment, part time jobs at best.
1: Yeah, it was interesting to talk about this. I worked in retail, you know, in high school and college, so 15, 20 years ago, and even thinking, talking to people who are working in in this sort of really precarious retail jobs now, that, that things that have changed and the The shifts are all shorter, right? I'm talking to people who are just working, like, four or five-hour shifts. But, you know, so you work every day of the week or almost every day of the week, but you still don't get to 40 hours. There
7: are are other problems, too. Clopening. Yep. Um, Where you're expected to both close and open at a store. Um, And on-call scheduling is huge. It's a huge problem because retailers have decided they wanted a very precarious... Workforce that they want lots of workers out there, right. and um, all of them desperate for more hours. Right. On call is a, is a scourge in the retail industry, which yeah. has to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. Um, people, mm-hmm. and how do you you're, you're on call? You have to be available, yeah. and you don't get compensated in any way. Yeah. But what's even worse is you have no control over your life, so you don't know if you're a parent or a single mother, um, what you're going to do about childcare, if you're going to need childcare. If you're a student, how do you arrange for a schedule if you don't know when you're going to be working, but I think more important since these jobs are part-time. Um, and you need another job just to support yourself, how do you arrange for a second job, yeah. a needed second job, right. if you don't know when you're going to be working? Yeah. And there's something absolutely wrong that people are told that they have to stay nearby, not make any other plans, yeah. just in case we may need you.
1: Right, right. Um, and you guys have had some pretty recent fairly significant victories in terms of organizing Zara workers. Zara workers. Babeland Union, one of my favorite yeah, things.
7: Babeland H M. It's um it's, yeah. I don't want to mention the bookstore by name, but we organized a chain of bookstores that specialized in Marxist literature and yet the owners (laughs) fought the union viciously.
1: Yeah, do you think that that younger people now are, are starting to think about the labor movement again as something that is important and relevant to them?
7: Oh, I'm really excited about younger people. I think that younger people are thinking about things that we haven't thought of before. I haven't thought of in a long time. Um, I was excited. I was thrilled um, with the Occupy movement. Mm -hmm. I'm thrilled with the fight for 15. I'm thrilled with all the enthusiasm there was to be involved with Bernie. Um, I'm told that um, 50% of some... Uh, Of young people in one poll, however you define young people, um, thought positively of socialism, Um, and I think that there's a sense. But I think that, that but I think there's also a problem too, in that young people are supportive of causes and movements they believe in, but they're not necessarily joiners. Yeah, and so people. 'll we'll see the importance of the labor movement and'll we'll be supportive of it, but we have to create new models yeah. for them We have here we 've created um, something we 've created our own workers center right. called the retail action project
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. what 's the latest with with rap
7: with rap? Um, RAP has grown, is doing uh, very well. We have thousands of people who are now part of RAP, um, who um, work at places that are not unionized yet. And um, they have found a way to have a voice through RAP on issues that are, are important to their experience as a retail worker. Um, we have RAP workers who are speaking out on scheduling. We have RAP workers speaking out on, on paid leave. We have RAP workers who are talking about um, what's happening in stores and doing actions. Yeah. And I think that's very exciting. Yeah. And that's an example of a new model, new workers.
1: So, going back to the sort of question of, of, um, you know, New York, thinking about even places where you know union density was historically high, in Alabama
7: used to be the most unionized state in the country.
1: Right, and so, you know, looking at, at why and how retail sort of never was unionized in the same way that, you know, that manufacturing was, but also. The places where it was and you know i'm thinking of right there is a history of retail unions there is a history of you know waitresses unions that goes back a hundred years but sort of you know now we just think of retail jobs as as high turnover jobs for pocket money or teenagers like you were saying and and so yeah i wonder if you have any thoughts on just like the history of that and how it gets lost
7: well we've been around since 1937 Um, the, um, and, you know, New York was the retail capital of the world, and, um, it's it's always been a destination for immigrants into this country, so it was natural for people to want to join together. Originally, when they did, you would find, um, different groups, um, coming together in a union based on their identity mm-hmm. so there would be an Italian speaking union there would be a Jewish union right, there would be yeah. different unions for different immigrant groups yeah. and uh, I, I think that there was also more of a notion here of having collective solutions to problems oh. that may not it may not have existed elsewhere in the country. And I also think that, you know, like there are different, there are every part of the country has different attitudes, and there are New York attitudes too. I think yeah. just because of our size and the diversity here, that we're more accepting
0: yeah.
7: of different ways of doing things than yeah. other parts of the country, maybe. Yeah. You have to look at social trends too, mm-hmm. I think, for. At one point, it was a predominantly female industry. And for women who wanted to work, there were not many options out there. Also, people who did not want to work in manufacturing, um, retail was very attractive. Um, You didn't have as many um, non-manufacturing options available.
1: That was Stuart Applebaum of RWDSU. For the other side of the country, I spent some time in Emeryville, California, a city which has the highest minimum wage in the nation and a lot of retail jobs packed into a small space. After passing that wage increase and paid sick days, Emeryville then passed a bill that gives retail workers more control over their schedules, including what's known as predictability pay, which means that the boss has to pay them more if they make last-minute schedule changes. Kelby Peeler is a retail worker turned organizer with the Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment who works on this issue. What brought you to Emeryville?
8: Um, What brought me to Emeryville? To the Bay Area. The Bay Area was school. Yeah. So I went to college in Reno. Yeah, and then I decided to finish up my college experience here in the Bay Area. Yeah, and that's I worked at Barnes Noble in Reno, and then they just transferred me here.
1: Okay, so that's so. how you found this. Really
7: cool
8: part yeah, of. <laughs> it just so happened that it was the place that had like the highest, or was about to have the highest minimum wage. I moved here yeah. without, the minimum wage wasn't the highest yet. Right. But. Yeah.
1: Yeah. What did you think of this when you like first started working here? I mean, I don't know. Like, it's it's a very interesting and unique. Place. I'm sort of fascinated by like.
8: Yeah, on fir- first impressions, it was kind of like uh, a perfect, uh, like just on first looking at it, it's kind of odd yeah. because you know that everybody who lives above us, yeah, um, none of uh, none of the people like work here, right? You know, and so there's kind of like a just built into the very fabric of like the structures here. Mm-hmm. There's like an inherent hierarchy, right? Um,
1: like literally from the top. Literally, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah.
8: Yeah, so a lot of the I know a lot of the residents here like come down and they actually shop in the stores right, yeah. all the time. I you get to know some of them even as just working yeah. within customer service. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> then yeah, take me back. How did you get involved with all of this? Was it the minimum wage campaign or
8: no? I was just uh, working at Barnes and Noble, yeah. and then Anya she yeah. uh, walked in, asked me how my scheduling was, and I told her, yeah. and then ever since then, uh, I've just been. Involved in there I, I volunteered for a lot A long time Several months mm-hmm. Uh With With Ace And then Their One of their organizers Had left mm-hmm. And so there was an opening And I And I felt that Um I It was something that I think I would really enjoy doing mm-hmm. And so I Applied Got the
1: okay. job <laughs> Great Um How was your
8: scheduling <laughs> My scheduling Um Worked for me Yeah Uh Because I was in school at the time Yeah Um But there were instances where I would um, experience clopenings. Yeah. Like there would be, I would, um, those became particularly problematic during uh, finals weeks. Mm -hmm. You know, where I might be in school, uh, like all day, have to work at night, and then come back in the morning, and then have to go to school in the afternoon. So you'd like... There's not a whole lot of time to study for those finals. And so you're just up like two, three days in a row.
7: Yeah.
8: Yeah.
1: (laughs) When you started doing... I guess you started working on the campaign as as a volunteer and as a worker.
8: At the time, I was being organized by a a girl named Ashley.
1: Yeah.
8: Um, But Anya was the original person who organized me. Mm -hmm. But uh, Ashley would just contact me, you know, maybe once a week. Yeah. uh, Ask me if I wanted to uh, participate in some given campaign or whatever it is. And I just yeah, I didn't really think about it. It was just more of, I felt like I had a, a moral duty to my coworkers to help organize a store. Yeah. Especially at the time, because we had a, we had a not so great boss.
1: Yeah.
8: Yeah. It's a little different from other types of organizing. Right. Like, because when you could do tenant organizing.
6: Right.
8: Um, you're, you're organizing, you're going door to door.
6: Yeah.
8: And you're, you're not having to worry about a landlord, like, hovering yeah. over. Yeah. Um, you know a tenant Yeah. Um, but when you're organizing uh, workers you have to keep in mind that you're going into their domain, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you can be kicked out of the store any moment, yeah. that there's uh, managers lurking around every corner, it's not that management can't be part of it, it's just we kind of want to steer away from management at the beginning because mm-hmm. yeah. um, we never know the relationships that they have Yeah. Um, and that's one of the hardest parts is going in and being able to recognize who is a manager and who's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some stores, they're, they're indistinguishable. Right. They don't like have a different dress code or anything. Yeah. It's also it difficult to get people to trust you enough to talk about their issues within a yeah. given 45-second time frame. Right, yeah. Sometimes when you go in, that's all you have, um, depending on the kind of store you're going into. Yeah. You really have to... You have a very small window of opportunity to convince them to come outside when they're a- uh, off the clock, yeah. and to talk with you, and open up to you, and that's like been a challenge.
1: So I imagine it's easier once you get somebody who's oh, working with you in so one store. So much easier. Yeah.
7: Uh,
8: yeah, they know they know their uh, their coworker schedules. Yeah, they know all the details of of, of who might be uh, worth talking to. Yeah, and they can just immediately set you up with them. Or just let you know, hey, blah 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 is coming off of work at four, yeah, and you just kind of wait for them outside instead of having to come into the store where they might be a little bit more nervous. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, And so since the the bill is passed, and and I guess we'll see what the next steps are going to be on on the enforcement. But um, it seemed like it went all right last night (laughs) on that front. So far, so good. Yeah. Um, So yeah. So what what are sort of the next steps for your work here right yeah. if you're not organizing people to like come be part of pushing for this bill now. yeah
8: so the ongoing long-term process is um, there's not going to be police officers in each store every right. day right making sure that all their all the management is following the law right ultimately uh, it's up to the workers to be the real enforcers right um, the city has limited resources and so, you know, they if, if there's any outreach at all or if there's any evaluations yeah. of compliance, right. I don't know the details, but I would imagine they're going to come in and, and evaluate compliance once every yeah. X amount of months. But right. yeah. scheduling problems are every day. Right. And so it's ultimately up to workers to enforce it. So that's like the long-term plan is to continue to organize workers around issues unrelated to scheduling, mm-hmm. just any issues that they have, but also ensure that they that they create coalitions of enforcement yeah. uh, within each store, that they know their rights. Right. And and if that proves to be successful and effective, there's no reason now why we can't go and push into Oakland. Right. Because as of right now, Oakland does not have a labor department. Right. And um, if the Fair Work Week uh, trend starts, it continues, yeah. and, and Oakland eventually gets a fair work week,
7: Yeah.
8: Emeryville can act as a model right. for how to implement a law like this.
1: That was Kelby Peeler. Kwame Grant is a retail worker in Emeryville who would be affected by
9: the ordinance, and he explains how it would help him. My name is Kwame Grant. And you work at I, I work at Fossil and Bay Street.
1: All right. How long have you worked there?
9: Uh, about a year now.
1: So, in terms of scheduling, you said a little bit about it when you were speaking in front of the council, but um, what have been your main issues with scheduling?
9: This um, job? Usually, my main issues with scheduling is that sometimes they, we usually get a lot of like, call outs. The stuff happens, but I'm yep. usually the person that's usually the one that com- comes in. Yeah. And you know, because you live closer than I, other people. Yes, or, I'm yep. the closest person, and um, usually, you know, they call the person who's the most reliable. And yeah. half the time, I'm the closest and the most reliable. Yeah. So that kind of is cool, but sucks for me because I never really get a day off. Because I'm at, uh, on, on my day off, I'm kind of on awesome. edge. Like, who's gonna call out? <laughs> am yeah. I gonna? Am I gonna actually have a day off, or am yeah. I gonna relax? So there's that. Uh, but other than that, the scheduling problems are normal, as everything else. Like,
1: yeah. Tell me what else about the job you
6: like. Is it stressful? Uh, it's the- it's
9: it's up and down. It's definitely stressful sometimes because we're dealing with a outdoor mall. So if it's yeah. not sunny, I'm not gonna see anybody, which uh-huh. affects my pocket business because if I'm not, do you work on commission? I work on. Hourly commission, which means if a hundred people come to my store and I don't sell anything, I'm not gonna get any hours. So I need to sell something. So if this no, if it's raining or anything like that,
1: wait, that's weird. I've never heard of
9: that. Yeah, so it's 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 based on sales per hour. So if you're there for ten at well, if you're there for an hour, you should make a hundred dollars. Yeah. So if you, you, no one comes in do that hour, you won't be scheduled for the next for the next time. Sometimes I
1: have never heard that. before. Yeah. I have talked to a lot of people about retail work, and I have never heard of that. Yeah. commission really. that's crazy.
9: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so even though you come in when they call you in, mm-hmm. when other people call out mm-hmm. stuff like that, you still have to also make a sales quota to get mm-hmm. scheduled.
9: Yeah, exactly. Is that
1: common? Do you know other people who have that?
9: I have no. It's literally my first retail job, so I have no that's idea crazy. how other like these retails go. But yeah, that? no, that's on top of that you have to come in when you're scheduled and then on top of your schedule of selling you have to sell at least a hundred dollars worth of items
1: so would the fair work week hopefully yeah make would, them not able to do that anymore it or would at it least would, affect it somehow
9: it would definitely the fair work week would affect the business to the fact well if i'm already going to get an extra money coming in mm-hmm. then i wouldn't want to kind of just call Anybody randomly Because now On top of that I need to have This sales quota If they're not making Their sales quota So I'm paying this person Double for doing nothing Yeah, yeah. So you know it's a. As a business person I would not like that But yeah. as a worker I love that Yeah So it makes yeah. it easier For more scheduling issues Because you know yeah. if, if someone calls out And calls six uh, Now it falls more On the manager Maybe wanting to uh-huh. stay longer Than having to call in workers To just try to cover it Yeah You know Yeah because I'm not on salary. Right, yeah, <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah. Um, how long are your usual shifts then? My usual <laughs>
9: shifts are about you know a typical eight hours sometimes. Yeah. So it's about an eight hour shift or a five hour shift mm. depending on the type of day. Uh, right now we're a little understaffed, so my I'm typically doing long shifts. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: Is this your only job?
9: This is my only job. I'm a musician by tr- by trade, so Excellent. I need, I use time, my other time to do music. What
1: do you play or sing? Right?
9: I sing and song, right? Excellent. Yeah.
1: Very cool. Does retail, like, at least allow you some flexibility to do that? It
9: does. It does allow me flexibility to do that because, at the same time, me not being called in all the time, I have the the ability of having a semi set schedule. Keyword is semi skit. So I know for a fact if I tell my job, for instance, I don't work Fridays, so I know for a fact I will always have Friday off. So I can do music or schedule a gig around that. Oh, that's cool. Mm -hmm.
1: That's that's something. What else should people know who've never worked retail about what it's like?
9: At least you told. Know that be ready <laughs> to drop everything and probably come to work. Uh, uh, same as being working in food. Uh, people are very annoying, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. I thought when they were foot full they were, weren't were annoying, but they're even worse. And try not to get returns.
1: Yeah. Does that come out of your, yes. your, your commission? Your yes, it does. It's your personal pocket. <laughs> Anything in particular that made you want to come out and speak here
9: tonight? Yeah, I want to make sure that this little can- city council knows that uh, please talk to the workers. Okay, we're we're not going to start a riot. We're not gonna <laughs> you know storm the building. We just want to make sure we're in the know that we want to do. We don't want you to do extra work, we just want to appreciate the work that you're doing for us. And so we know how to implement these laws, and that way everybody's winning. Because the worst part is lack of communication. So if, with like I said, of lack of communication, I would have never known about this law, I'd be constantly getting called in and probably never getting the, the amount of money that I should have been gotten. So, you know, hopefully we can change that.
1: That was Kwame Grant. And last but certainly not least, Anya Savano is an organizer with ACE who talks about the importance of enforcement of this bill. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the importance of enforcement um, and the particular sort of challenges, but also um, benefits to doing this in a place like Emeryville that is so concentrated.
0: Um, Yeah, I would say that this particular policy it's 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 especially important to have a very thorough enforcement strategy because it's not something as simple as just increasing the like wages per hour you yeah. know and um that you can really just look at a case of and, and ensure that uh, that the policy is being enforced it's much more you know the, the culture like scheduling practices are cultural practices. Right. Um, and so you have to fundamentally shift the culture of retail in order to enforce the policy, um, which is something that that means changing people's behaviors and, and the ways that they've been operating for a long time. It's not something that you just change on the back end. I mean, some of it can be, some of the changes can become more simplified through, simple changes in technology and yeah. like the scheduling software. Um, but some of it really just also requires a, a shift in like the culture and, and that, you know, right now it might be a, a daily practice that if uh, traffic is low within the store, a manager asks an employee to stay on longer. Yeah. Um, uh, or to, 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 to end work early. Um, and, you know, not realizing that that would trigger, an hours an hour's worth of predictability pay right um and if the worker doesn't know that and the manager isn't fully aware of that that um it means they're not complying with the law <laughs> which could get like you know businesses is isn't trouble but also isn't really isn't isn't, isn't making sure that it's not that we're not changing anything you know right. yeah. and so um it requires a lot of education um and a lot of like changing really what is considered the norm, you know, and a lot of businesses yeah. and industries, it's normal to work a nine to five and that's the expectation. And so people, if they're asked to work later or not, like they expect, they don't, they're, not, they're not willing to bend as much around certain like scheduling changes because yeah, um, the norm has been set. And that's really what we're trying to accomplish here is like just a new norm. Right. You know, and currently the norm is that everything changes constantly and that you really have no control over your life or your time, because that is all subject to like the the profits and the the busyness of the store. Um, mm-hmm. And and that takes precedence over your life and your family um, and everything else, you know? And so we want to change that, that norm so that having stable, predictable schedules that benefit families and workers is... Is actually more important, <laughs> you know, than um, yeah. the the day to day bottom line. you know. And, and yeah. actually, I do think that that by doing this stuff, that companies will be more profitable. Yeah. Uh, in the long haul, that like like businesses that provide good jobs are actually do better than businesses that don't <laughs> provide good yeah. jobs.
1: That was Anya Svano of ACE in California, and that concludes our retail conversation. We will put links to all the information discussed here up at the Descent website.
0: You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org.
1: And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, ARG. I wish I'd written that. The piece I chose for ARG this week, right here at Descent, fits in with today's theme rather well. Friend of the show, Gabriel Winant, wrote a piece titled The New Working Class, and it is an argument for understanding the composition and political needs of the working class as it is right now, and is becoming, rather than as some trapped in amber icon of fading industrial strength. Inspired in part by the Democratic Party's heavy investment in the suburban Georgia race, where John Ossoff lost to Republican Karen Handel, Wynette notes that Democrats continue to make excuse after excuse for suburban voters' loyalty to the GOP, determined to win the Panera Bread vote of these mythical Republicans who are just going to be disgusted enough by Trump to vote for Democrats, and ignoring the needs of the multiracial, multiethnic, multigender working class that everywhere is struggling. He writes, quote, to imagine that we should look for class and see hard hats mistakes a particular historical manifestation, the industrial working class, for a general category whose ranks are always changing. But while the idea of a new working class is not yet widely accepted, its distinguishing features are, on their own terms, familiar. We can reduce them down roughly to feminization, racial, racial diversification, and increasing precarity, care work, immigrant work, low-wage work, and the gig economy. There's also a host of interlinked forces shaping working class life from outside the workplace, policing and punishment, housing insecurity, indebtedness, the cost of education, and the difficulties of caring for the young, the disabled, the sick, the addicted, and the old. A set of shared experiences coheres here and a potential set of shared enemies, landlord, lender, bill collector, manager, cop. Racialized and gendered unevenness and exposure to these forces is real, but that portion of experience that is shared appears quite clearly to be growing year by year at the intensifying intersection points of race, gender, and class. This, the growing stock of common experience, is the process called class formation. The working class, Wynant notes, can and will speak for itself despite the best efforts of the meritocratic class to ignore it. Here at Belabored, of course, we try to amplify those voices. As Wynant argues, we believe that
2: it is past time for those in power to try listening for a change. And my pick for this episode is a big investigative feature at USA Today called Rigged. It's by Brett Murphy. Um, It's a year-long investigation into the conditions facing port truck drivers. That is a group of workers that we have talked about numerous times at Belabored. Uh, Mostly their struggle to get organized and to fight for their rights in the job. Uh, This one is a deep dive into the lives and day to day struggles of workers who are tethered to debt and basically treated as modern day indentured servants. They are technically not considered real workers under federal fair labor standard laws. Um, They are actually considered self-employed somehow, even though their working conditions are completely determined by the uh, companies that contract them. According to the report, the companies are forcing drivers to work against their will up to 20 hours a day by threatening to take their trucks and keeping the money they paid towards buying them. So at the end of the day, drivers are terrified about being arbitrarily fired, or stuck on the lowest paying routes in retaliation for challenging their working conditions. Some are physically held captive in order to finish up their shifts. Back in the day, the ports were where gangs of workers gathered hoping to pick up whatever drudge work was available that day. On the east and west coast, workers managed to rise up and form some of the most powerful unions in the country. And while there still is a robust longshore workers' union today, truckers are still at the bottom of the supply chain, um, especially because in this uh, highly deregulated sector, uh, unions like the Teamsters are no longer as powerful as they once were, and they have been struggling to advocate for workers on a case-by-case basis. The good news is that they are making some inroads in the courts, The bad news is that this has generally been on the basis of individual lawsuits, and they haven't really challenged the really systemic and structural problems with the port economy overall, and with the entire sort of just-in-time logistical chain that leads them to highly exploitative conditions. And the important thing about this story is that it underscores not just that truckers are highly exploited at these ports, but that the supply chain is really connected to our entire economy, and Murphy writes that California's port truckers make it possible for the Walmarts and Amazons of the world to function. Even so, most of the two dozen retail companies contacted by USA Today Network declined to comment, some saying that they had never even heard of the rash of labor violations at the primary points of entry. So either they're just plain ignorant or plain dumb. The USA Today story is particularly important because it connects the human suffering happening in plain sight at these liminal ports in a part of the country that most of us will never interact with. And it traces it all the way to our laptops, to our local retail stores, and to the labels we wear every day. Sadly, very little reporting on the economy ties low-wage labor conditions to our consumer culture, and if we knew more and if we were more aware of the people who suffer to make our shopping experience convenient and comfortable, we'd get very uncomfortable very quickly about the shiny products we buy as the last link in a long chain of abuses that keeps us all tied to corporate power. And that does it for episode 130 of Belabored. If you want to contact us about any workplace grievances you have at your crappy retail job, or you want to talk about a strike you're organizing or what you're doing to fight the Trump presidency, get us at hashtag belabored on Twitter. And you can also contact us by email at belabored at Over and out.
0: You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.